Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We're continuing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be discussing chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. We've seen that there are some differences between the version we find in Luke, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, and what we have here in Matthew. Now, this has been explained in a number of ways, but as we discussed in an earlier episode, the most likely explanation is that this is a record of the same sermon, and the differences are due to Matthew and Luke having their own style and their own personal way of telling a story. Luke has the Beatitudes addressed to people, blessed are you. And we can almost see Jesus pointing his finger at his disciples. Matthew's version is in the third person. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, etc. And this continues until verse 11, when he then switches. Blessed are you when others revile you, and so on. Now here he switched from talking about the general descriptions of those who will benefit from the coming kingdom to his own personal disciples who have gone up with him on the mountain And now he's going to address what can be expected of them. In the Beatitudes, which should be taken together, Jesus has drawn a composite picture of the kind of person who will benefit from the coming kingdom. Luke's version has a more explicit binary. That is, blessed are you poor, but woe to those who are rich, and so on. The negative aspect is certainly more subtle in Matthew, though it does lie just there behind the surface, or beneath the surface. It stands to reason, for example, that if those who are pure in heart will see God, well, then those that are not pure in heart won't see God. But I bring all of this up to say that Jesus' sermon so far in this introductory section has focused on those who will benefit from the coming kingdom, which in turn subtly contains bad news for those who are outside of that circle. However, this isn't the full picture. It may seem at this juncture that Jesus is calling out a certain group pronouncing them blessed, and then, well, kind of uh, literally to hell with everyone else. Uh, This could lead to a sort of elitist, exclusive, sectarian mindset. Now, the more that we know of groups like the Essenes and the group at Qumran, uh, responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, shows us that this worldview was very much an option for a first-century Jewish person. The Essenes saw the temple as corrupt and so withdrew to the wilderness. Kind of like Lot walking away from Sodom while it burns. But although Jesus has pronounced the nearness of the kingdom and following on the heels of John, we can see him as a preacher of judgment, this does not mean things are so close to the end as to give up all hope. There still is a missional call for those who are outside. Jesus' disciples are not to escape in despair of the world around them. Notice carefully the role Jesus gives to his disciples, the blessed ones who will be in the kingdom, in verses 13 to 16 of Matthew 5. I'll start reading in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There are two fantastic images that Jesus uses here. The first one is salt, which had a variety of purposes in the first century. The commentators Davies and Allison describe a few, and here I'm going to read selectively uh, for time's sake. They, they say, quote, As to what is meant in this passage by salt, the options are many. The following considerations are pertinent. In Leviticus 2.13 and Ezekiel 43.24, salt is prescribed as an element to be added to sacrifices. In Numbers 18 and 19, Leviticus 2.13, the salt of the covenant is mentioned. In 2 Kings 2, Elisha performs a miracle and uses salt to purify bad drinking water. The connection between salt and purity is also found in Exodus 30. Uh, in Job, salt is a condiment for food. Uh, later on in Ignatius, uh, salt is a preservative. Uh, we also find that uh, salt is just basic to the needs of human beings. In Ezra, chapter 4, we read that um, those who eat the salt of the palace cannot be witnesses against the king. Uh, to eat salt with someone is therefore a sign of loyalty. In Mark 9, salt is linked with peace. And in Colossians 4, we read that let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And uh, in rabbinic text later on, sometimes salt is associated with wisdom. They conclude, given the various uses for salt and its several symbolic associations, it is quite impossible to decide what one characteristic is to the fore in Matthew 5.13. Secondly, you are the salt of the earth stands in parallel to you are the light of the world. And in 5.14-16, the light is understood very broadly, being associated with good deeds in general. It would appear then that salt is, like light, a symbol which should not be delimited to any one referent. The disciples, like salt, have several characteristic qualities, qualities without which they would cease to be what they are and instead become useless, end quote. So rather than finding some specific use of salt, like it being used for preservation, it's best to just see this as a positive agent used for the good of something else. And notice the attention Jesus gives to this little parable in the second half of the verse. Salt has a role to play in benefiting others, but if it loses its effect, then it loses its nature. In the same way, one of the core elements of being Jesus' disciple is missional. It is to affect the world around us. And if we lose that component, we are then good for nothing. We are disciples who aren't disciples anymore. We are only good for being cast out. Again, we can contrast this with groups like those at Qumran, or we can think of many other examples throughout history in which Christian groups have retreated from the world instead of positively interacting with it, fighting for its good. So when a so-called Christian community runs away from the world, they lose their essential nature as disciples of Jesus who has come to reach the world. We simply have to be interested in the well-being of the world around us. The second image is being the light of the world. In a lot of ways, this is a restatement of the first idea in verse 13, but just from a different perspective. The reason you have salt is, well, to put it on something. And the reason that you have a lamp is to shine it on something else. That's the nature of the thing itself, is to affect something besides itself. In, in the same way, the nature of discipleship is to reach someone besides yourself. It is to be missional. 
But though there are similarities, uh, the light image is more intricate. Of course, light is used in all kinds of different ways in the Bible. A reference to being light by itself doesn't necessarily evoke any particular connection. However, only one chapter previously, Matthew has gone out of his way to describe Jesus as God's light, sent into the dark places, Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, recall Matthew 4, 15-17, which quotes from Isaiah 9. Quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned, End quote. Light here is not just knowledge, but it is the saving work of God to redeem his people. In an earlier episode, we talked about how a day dawning is, is kind of a good way of thinking about the kingdom being present, coming here, but not all the way here. It's on its way. So Matthew himself very recently has made the connection for us. Being light is the mission of the Messiah as he brings in God's salvation to the dark world. Notice also that word, the dark world, not just the Jewish people, but even also the Gentiles. At this significant moment of describing the nature of discipleship to Jesus, uh, particularly in its missional nature, how fascinating to find that the same messianic image of Jesus, the light, is then also transferred over and applied to the disciples. You, the Greek is emphatic here in Matthew, you are the light of the world. They are so closely connected with Jesus' own mission that they can be clothed in much of the same rich Old Testament imagery that the Lord himself is. There's more here, though. Uh, Matthew has already connected the idea of being light to the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah. Now, that pole of resonance has already been activated in his readers' minds. It seems likely, then, that when we read about the city on the hill, and the Greek here is uh, the same as mountain, the city on the mountain, shining in its light to all the world so that everyone glorifies God. Well, it seems like that's an allusion to the end times or eschatological Jerusalem sitting on Mount Zion, as in Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, allow me to read a few verses from this beautiful chapter. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear to you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. End quote. Now, I read this far in so much of Isaiah chapter 60 in order to remind you that Matthew has already activated Isaiah 60 in his readers' minds. If you've been coming along this journey with us, no doubt you noticed a few things, particularly uh, the frankincense and the gold that is then brought into Jerusalem. We should connect this with the Magi that come and visit the Lord Jesus 
uh, discussed in Matthew chapter 2. So, if we've been paying attention to the allusions formed in the account of the Magi to this text, we are all the more likely to see this reference to a restored Jerusalem. The idea, then, is that Jesus' disciples are the blessed ones. They are the ones who will inherit the kingdom. But this scheme does not mean that they are saved over against the world or to the detriment of the world. They are saved but with a purpose, to reach the world. They are followers of Jesus who has come as a light. They are like the redeemed city itself, restored so as to be a beacon to the outside world, inviting them too to share in the blessings of God's kingdom. And the way they shine this light, pay very careful attention here, the way that they shine this light is by their good works. So let your light shine among men that they may see your good works. That is to say, their function follows from their form. They act because of who they are. They are light, so they let it shine. They are salt, so then they affect others. Uh, They are redeemed. They act like it. And this invites others to partake of the same and glorify God as a result. Now, uh, what Jesus has particularly in mind as these good works, well, we're not left to just fill in the blank ourselves, he makes that clear for us in the following section. And he's going to have a lot to say about how we are to act in the next chapters. So much so that we can see these verses as a heading for the text. Uh, But the purpose of all of this is missional. It is uh, by doing all of the things that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. We are acting as salt to the world. We are acting as light to the dark places. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.